On November 29, 2016, West Coast Children's Clinic hosted a panel on child sex trafficking. We were interested in exploring the ways gender, race, and power impact the child sex trade. This is the third of five podcasts from a recording of that evening's panel. Thank you so much for listening. Early U.S. policy not only excluded women of color from protections against rape and prostitution, slavery and colonization explicitly supported it. An 1855 court case called Missouri versus Celia a slave ruled that rape law did not protect Celia, a 19-year-old who was raped by her owner since she was 14 because she didn't meet the legal definition of a quote-unquote woman. She had no right to resist. Racialized sexual stereotypes, the black woman as Jezebel, the eroticized Asian woman, further justified rape and exploitation. These gender and racial myths shape our beliefs and responses to child sexual exploitation. Malika, can you speak to the significance of popular imagery and language in constructing our view of who a victim is? And how is Celia relevant today? So I, I hear the legacy of Cecilia in one of the cases that um, continues to haunt me of a girl in LA, 14 years old, in the foster care system, coerced into being trafficked, in the car one night, law enforcement comes upon her and the buyer, pulls her out of the car, calls her a dirty black bitch, puts handcuffs on her, throws her into the police car, and allows the individual, the adult male, who purchased her to go free. She is charged with prostitution even though she's 14 years old and therefore not of legal age to consent. She's charged with prostitution and therefore not seen as a victim. She's not afforded the protected status of victim or of child, right? Or of child. Tanahisi Coates talks about how the black body has been subject to state-sanctioned terror. But the black and brown female body has been rendered communal property. And so when our girls of color are bought and sold for sex. They are not construed as victims. They are not treated as children. They are criminalized. 1,000 children every year are arrested for prostitution. Even though they are minors, even though they are not of age to consent, 69% of those children are African-American. So who is allowed to be understood as the victim of sexual violence? And who is seen as unrapeable, right? 
And those are entrenched racial mythologies and narratives in this country. That the black and brown female body is communal property, that she is Jezebel, she is Sapphire, and therefore she cannot be raped. And no individual is held accountable for the abuse done to her because it is not construed as abuse, because she is over-sexualized, because she is not fully understood as person, as female, or in the case of our girls, as children. And so this very entrenched pattern that we see play out in every state in this country where black and brown girls are being subject to commercial serial rape are not seen or protected as victims and as children, but are instead criminalized, are instead named as prostitutes, as over-sexualized, as therefore unrapeable. And until we begin to interrogate what we are doing to our girls in this way, we are continuing this very dangerous racial mythology and narrative in our country. And we are failing to protect our girls in the ways that they absolutely deserve. There has been a lot of attention, and rightly so, given to the school to prison pipeline, right? and really powerful conversations around the over-criminalization of our boys, and our boys of color especially. What has to also be recognized around that narrative is that our girls of color, our black and brown girls, are also being over-criminalized. And for them, it's the sexual abuse to prison pipeline Right? Because our girls get put behind bars for prostitution. Or they're put behind bars for running away, for the status offense of running away. Right? We tell women who are being abused to run. When our girls run from abusive foster care placements or group homes, or abusive parents, when they run from abuse, we lock them up on the status offense of running away, right? So this sexual abuse to prison pipeline must be named, must be part of our overall racial justice critique of over-criminalization of our children. And we also have to name, right, this very sick, history of how we understand the black and brown female body. How this long history of seeing our bodies as unrapeable, of over-sexualizing our bodies, of not honoring the pain and the hurt that comes from when we are violated, that tradition of normalizing it, of turning us against ourselves in the naming of our hurt because of sexual violence, that has to end. And one very critical way 
of ending it is to say, absolutely no child should be arrested for prostitution. And absolutely, when a man, when an adult takes a child and purchases her to rape her, that that individual be held accountable, not for prostitution, solicitation, right? This is not solicitation. This is child rape. And unless we name it as such, we continue to perpetuate and entrench this long mythology of the black and brown female body as unrapeable. Yeah. District Attorney O'Malley. Nancy, that's cool. <laughs> right now you're in the process of charging six Bay Area police officers for their involvement with a sexually exploited teenager. You have a counterpart in Contra Costa County that has declined to prosecute. How do you think gender, race, and power show up here? Well, I, I'm not gonna talk about the case we're prosecuting because I have to try our cases in a courtroom. So I'm gonna be very careful about not speaking specifically about the cases that we're talking about. And I'm not gonna comment particularly about the counterparts in not just one county, but two counties, because they make their decisions. So let me talk about what we are doing and why and where uh, race and power and gender play into that. That uh, just in general, and I will speak about uh, first in general, a police department like the Oakland Police Department that had someone like Holly Joshi really guiding them for 10 years to educate and sensitize them about the victimization of children who are being put into, uh, into the position of being raped for money. A, it's against the law, and B, that one of the things that Holly and those of us that work closely in our community here in Alameda County spent so many years talking about is the victimization of putting the face to the person who is being, the child who's being raped. So from a position of power and authority to exploit that in order for their own personal satisfaction I find morally reprehensible. Reprehensible. I think that, especially when we talk about law enforcement, or in this county, we've prosecuted a judge, we've prosecuted doctors who work at ch with children, we've prosecuted lawyers who are going to court to represent children. It is the that level of a knowing how the impact and how wrong it is. And then secondly, uh, taking advantage and adding to the layer of trauma that that child is going to experience as a result of that encounter. So that abuse of power to me is so significant, maybe even more significant than, than somebody who's driving down the street. I mean, it's all bad, but to take the power and from the victim's perspective, to say this is the person who's suppo I'm supposed to run to when something happens to me, 
and now they're the ones that are exploiting me or raping me, is, does so much damage to the psyche, so much damage to the, the ability to trust anybody. And one of the things we do know, and we've heard from many, many young people, thousands of young people who have been trafficked, is that they never, their, their ability to trust the adults to really care for them, to really love them, to really want them to be healthy and well, disappeared. First, many with their primary family, and then secondary when they were put in foster home, and maybe they got moved from foster home to foster home to foster home, and pretty soon, the only message they know in their head, that voice in our head is, nobody loves me, and who am I supposed to trust, and who's going to protect me? So the, the abuse of power, the, the gender, and you know, I have to tell you that we have women who are sexually exploiting and raping boys. So this is, an, this is a phenomenon that we, that we have to recognize. And I think that um, where race comes into this is what we've been talking about. And particularly Malika with Malita and, uh, and Holly talked about for sure. And that is that uh, what we found in Alameda County, what we spent the last 10 years doing is transforming this community to recognize children of color as victims of crime when they're being victimized. We have spent a lot of time, and this community has transformed. And I look out in the audience, I see so many of our partners and so many of our heroes who have spent their, their time uh, being out there to make sure that, that uh, our community recognizes the victimization of girls and boys of color. And what we also find <clears throat> that those that are doing the abuse are oftentimes white or from a different race. And so, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a, this issue of flipping who's the criminal and who's the victim is critically important. And I have to say in this county, we've been doing that for a long time. We've been doing that for a long time and, it, it, and it's, it's very empowering and we hope that that will carry through in other counties. But the last thing I'll say is that in this county, we have a greater sensitivity about who's the victim and who's the perpetrator. And that greater sensitivity may be gender-based because we experienced it ourselves and we know people that have experienced it. And, and it makes a difference, it may make a difference in how we approach all of these cases uh, given our gender. Thank you. Judge B.E., since 2014, you've had 241 cases in your specialized court for exploited youth. 99% are female, 74% are girls of color. 86% have been involved in the child welfare system. From your perspective, can you speak to what's going on here? I will try to do, <laughs> I will try to do so in the two minutes that I have. <laughs> Um, what's going on here? There are a couple of things that are going on here. One of the things that has happened and is happening, and as Malika referenced, is the intersection of race. Um, and I say that in terms of the movement of a child into system and from child welfare into juvenile justice as it relates to this sort of other view 
not being able as systems, as professionals on some level, I'll clarify that in a minute, to see ourselves in these children and to see that they are our children. Um, someone that I know who is a victim, a survivor, who is a thriver, um, had many conversations with her and she talked about her victimization and how it was obviously so devastating, but in some ways more unique because of her race, because her trafficker said, I can lower my price for you because you're black. How I can exploit you, but I'm gonna reduce your value, your worth in that exploitation because you are black. And then further gradation, depending on whether you were dark, light, mixed, so when a child has a, or comes from a home that has some sort of disconnect, and I appreciate disconnect as a very sterile um, word, whether it's substance abuse, whether it is domestic violence, where it is mental health, when you have an instability and that child is removed from the home, the system is focused on what is it that that parent or that guardian is doing. And our immediate response is to pull that child out of that home to make him or her safe. And for many, the focus of the child welfare system is then more about the parent. What are our case plans saying for what the parent is or isn't doing, might or might not be able to do to make it safe to reunify with that child? So we're sort of focused on the parent and then we have this youth who is placed in foster care, either a foster home or congregate care. And for the many reasons that many of you know here tonight, the instability of that foster care placement, that ability to be moved seven times in three years and eight schools, when you don't have a sense of connection, when you don't have that trusting adult who you can say, I'm gonna raise my hand because something's wrong here and I don't know who to go to, when you're dealing with that and you're an adolescent and you have all of the normal adolescent brain development, when you have all of that dysregulation because of the trauma that you are experiencing and you're running from a foster home that you don't feel safe in, then you become more vulnerable to those persons who are looking for children to prey upon. I'll take care of you, honey. You need somewhere to stay. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to bring you in. I'm gonna make you comfortable, and then I'm gonna flip the switch. Then you're dealing with that confusion and my sense of, is this safe, is this normal, is this my family? And then you start experiencing discomfort and rage and anger, and then that sorts, starts to manifest itself in a way that law enforcement somehow gets a flag or comes into your life. So this sort of sexual abuse to prison pipeline because this child is simply trying to make sense of a world that makes no sense but is normal to them, pulls and pushes them too often into system, into child welfare, into juvenile justice, and then again for too many, graduating into the adult system. So part of what I see going on and what is happening is because we are good at generalization. I'm gonna make this child safe, I'm gonna remove them from the home, and I'm gonna put them in foster care and that'll take care of it, the child will be safe. 
and then I know that didn't work, but you acted out, you blew out a window in a group home, you hit another kid, you stole someone else's phone, now I'm gonna take you to juvenile hall. So this sort of graduated experience when you're just trying to figure out how to be a child and what that really looks like on a mental, physiological level. Yeah. Min, you've spoken to the invisibility of Asian Americans and the impact of racial, gender, and power stereotypes. Can you talk about this more? Absolutely. So um, Holly talked a lot about how systems aren't really designed to support everyone, and specifically Southeast Asian youth aren't system involved, right? So um, off the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, you know, kids who act out. So to, to address a specific stereotype, if kids in an Asian American community are trained to be super obedient and respect elders and at school are not acting out or aren't running away, then they aren't gonna be seen as potential victims. There are certainly youth who are also acting out, but it is um, easily easy to use the model minority stereotype to say, oh, well those kids will get it taken care of at home, they've got strict parents, that's just how immigrant families do it, don't worry about them. Um, I want to address also the historical roots of the stereotype as Asian women as docile and um, easily raped and easily dominated. So we had the US setting up comfort stations for military people. Um, globally, we've got mail order brides, we have geishas, we have this, uh, we have Miss Saigon, this musical that basically says that it's you know a love story tale for a 17-year-old girl to be um, selling herself. So there are a lot of cultural supports for this idea of Asians are forever foreigners. They don't know how to speak English. Those massage parlors that you see every 100 yards, people just want to be there, right? And so there's constantly this idea that, again, these are not potential victims. They deserve it. They want it. That's just who they are. People are just born slutty, right? Like, you're born, I just had a niece born and she was seven pounds. You're born seven pounds or you're born a slut? Like, that's our actual idea. Like, people are just born this way and they just like being raped. Um, there's also kind of this idea um, around the Asian Pacific Islander community that we don't experience racism. We talk about black and brown youth, but often it's about the black community, the Latino community, maybe the native, maybe the native community. Um, but as an Asian American, I was born here in the States. I can't tell you how many times I get asked, where are you from? No, where are you really from? Right, and so this constant idea that Asian Americans are pitted against the black community rather than part of the Black Panther Party and always been aligned with African American community. Um, similarly, you know, recently there's been talks about the internment camps and really looking at how Asian Americans are seen as a threat to other communities of color. Um, and there's something else I was gonna say that I'm forgetting. Had to do with pitting against the African American community. Um, oh, I wanted to make a statement about this slavery narrative. 
So I'm really glad that we're talking about how slave masters raped slaves and this concept of the Jezebel and it's okay to rape someone, in fact they deserve it and it's better to be the house slave, right, than the field slave. Now as an Asian American person who identifies as a survivor of slavery, I want to just acknowledge that in this US context, that means something different. I will never know what it's like to be a black person in the United States. However, all the slave narratives I've ever read comes closest to my experience. So I wanna be really careful about using that. We need to recognize the historical roots of slavery and child sex trafficking and how it affects girls of color and how Asian Americans and Asians have also been enslaved. But we need to be really careful about using that terminology and having it associated with white slavery and what does that mean and, and having that term misappropriated. Sorry. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is we also need to call out this concept of let's, let's save the cute brown kids abroad, but let's not address the brown kids in the United States. Yeah. Holly, there's a lot of discussion in how law enforcement officers respond. How do gender and racial biases play out in the field? Wow, you, you're asking the hard questions today. Right. I appreciate it, though. <laughs> this is really the, one of the first panels that I've been on in, in the decade that have been in, on panels discussing sex trafficking, which we're just really going at the tough conversations and really highlighting um, gender and race specifically. Because uh, in my experience in the movement, we've really focused on um, talking about the commonalities and not talking about race. And I've gotten criticism often from other folks that, that are in the movement, that are well-intentioned, that believe that when we do talk about race, that um, it's isolating for certain folks that are either in the audience or in the movement. And for me, I can't, I can't accept that um, lens or that narrative because in order for us to really come up with solutions that make sense and that are survivor-centered and that are gonna be impactful, we have to really address what's happening and in order to address it holistically and to um, treat and respect the whole person, we have to respect the whole experience. So I know that's not your question, but I wanted to say that. <laughs> Um, as, as far as how it, how it shows up in, in law enforcement, I, I think I touched on it in a, the first question, just regarding um, the ways in which gender played out in you know, an arrest of a, a female, no matter her age, and the sight and release of a male. I mean, law enforcement is given great discretion. And that's one thing that as we have a conversation as a nation, just about law enforcement in general and um, changing policies and changing procedures and changing laws and holding law enforcement accountable to things, one of the things that we really also have to acknowledge and have really deep discussions around is law enforcement culture. And how do we change that? Because someone famously said that, that culture will eat laws for breakfast, right? I mean, and, and, and that's my experience, is that really, how do we live in a, in a true democracy in which law enforcement is a real reflection of all of us? And, and that's a, a large discussion around what is it that law enforcement should look like act like, be like, represent, and what is the job that we want a 21st century police department to do? Because that, 
right now we're, we, we haven't had that conversation and we haven't identified what it is that we want a 21st century police department or police officer to look like. And when I mean that, I mean what skills do they possess? What mentality do they have? How do they move in the world and how do they see themselves in the work? And how do they see themselves as community servants? And until we interrogate that and answer that question, we're gonna go round and round in circles about law enforcement and their discretion and their bad choices and their scandals and all of those things because we're still operating off of a framework of what we identified should be law enforcement's job and position hundreds of years ago. And so that would be my, my challenge to our first question um, around what is it that a 21st century police department looks like? Um, and in my opinion, um, law enforcement officers really need to possess skills that um, mirror social work or, or teachers or nurses and, and the helping professions. Because, you know, that's, I spent 14 years there and that's 75% of the job or more. But we do this false advertising in which we continue to seek out people who are really looking for excitement and fun and, and want to shoot guns and drive fast and, and have a good time loosely in our city and they're not connected to the city or the community or understand the people or to how to communicate in, in, in this environment. So um, hopefully I, I took my two minutes to, kind, to roundabout answer the question, but I think that you know, law enforcement discretion plays out every day because our laws are most oftentimes written to give them discretion in the field, to make decisions in the field. And it's all about their perception of what's happening. We've seen it time and time again when we're talking about law enforcement shootings or uses of force. It's very difficult to charge or convict law enforcement officers for shootings that, as society, we don't feel are justified because really the law gives them the discretion and the ability to just be able to explain that they felt threatened or that their life was in danger. And that looks very differently, looks very different to different law enforcement officers depending on, again, what skills and experiences they bring to the table. And I'll just real briefly say that um, I was one time on a, on a scene and I was a rookie cop, I was really new, and I was in the neighborhood in East Oakland where I grew up. And um, the call came out as a domestic violence dispute. And um, I pulled up and I was alone because Oakland police officers most oftentimes don't have partners. And I was young, I was in my 20s and you know I was, um, my size and everything, and I pull up and I see a very large black man pacing back and forth, back and forth in front of his house. And he was clearly upset, kind of talking to himself and, and cussing under his breath about whatever had transpired in his house with, with his wife. But I got, you know, some distance and just engaged in conversation with him, and we were involved in this conversation, me kind of trying to de-escalate to find out what was going on. And um, a male police officer, a white male police officer from outside the city pulled up in his police car, came running out, and the next thing I know, the guy was tased and, and on the ground. Um, and from my perception, I, I was confused. You know, he wasn't a threat to me. He was a large black man who was distraught that looked like one of my uncles on 107th Avenue, for those of us from East Oakland, right? Um, but from this law enforcement officer's perspective, he was a threat. And so those are the types of questions I think we need to interrogate when we're talking about law enforcement discretion and the way in which it plays out in the field. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about West Coast Children's Clinic, visit www.westcoastcc.org.